Good afternoon. You're listening to Gallery of Ideas Radio. My name is Andrew Pitt, and we will be talking with expat locals. Today, in the hot seat, one of my uh, very good friends and featured guests all the way from Barcelona is Mr. Paul Burnett. Please say hello to everybody, Paul. Hi, everybody. Hi, Andy. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Very good. No coughs and sneezes. Absolute clear here. Excellent, excellent. So, Paul, so the uh, so have you well listening audience get to know you a little bit better? How about we start all the way from the beginning and you tell me a little bit about your life story? Ah, uh, yes. Now, normally we, we do this on a terrace with a few beers and we've got a lot of time, but I'll speed it up for you. The potted history is I left uh, Leeds where I was working for a while. Actually, for a beer company. Uh, Why did you leave? That's a good (laughs) question. Um, The salary was terrible. The perks were fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Yes, but that that is not something you can see yourself progressing in. And a couple of friends that I'd studied with uh, were from Canada. And a lot of students from Canada, to pay off their student debt, they go out to South Korea. Right. And you could teach English there, and it used to be that you could make quite a lot of money. So, in fact, enough to pay off your student debts in a few years, a couple of years even. Paul, so, I'll interrupt you. I have one South Korean joke. Oh, go on. Okay. I love South Korea. It's got soul. Oh. Yeah, I know. Oh, Great. God. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you with that, but go for it. (laughs) Oh, that's a brutal one. But yeah, and the thing is that I ended up in a beautiful city in a great job um, teaching English in a university uh, by the beach in the very south, Mm. south of Busan, a place called Busan, Mm -hmm. um, which is a fair sized city, about 8 million people. Yeah, pretty big. Um, and it felt like walking into Blade Runner. <laughs> it really was. You can imagine neon everywhere, uh, strange-looking language. Mm. And they had a way of writing everything in Roman alphabet that made no sense at all. Okay. So to get from A to B just became off such a trial. And this was early days, on, when was it? Year 2000. Wow. 2000, yeah. And that was, yeah, it was quite an experience. Um, a couple of years later, I'd made quite a lot of money, and I went uh, on holiday in Thailand, mm. and that's, which is pretty common. A lot of people do that, yeah. um, except I, I just stayed, basically. Um, I sort of ended up, there were lots of things I liked about the place, but very quickly, it became clear that I could earn quite a lot of money in Thailand. And, of course, the cost of living was so low that the expat lifestyle in Thailand, certainly in the early 2000s, was was really impressive. Excellent. Um, yes, yeah, it was quite. And were you teaching again in Thailand? That's right. I got myself into another university uh, role there. Nice. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, a little bit lucky, I have to say, mm-hmm. because these jobs are quite scarce. So from the basic sort of teaching level, Mm-hmm. which, you know, salary is almost a local salary, right. all the way up to sort of, you know, the fairly well. Well, that's right. Um, and then private uh, students as well. So you could really do quite well. Mm-hmm. You've got quite long holidays. 
And then, of course, you can move. I was basically Bangkok, which is where you know the big companies and the university. Mm -hmm. But from there, of course, if you've got a long weekend, you're hitting some of the most beautiful beaches around. Indeed, indeed. Were you so, there for? Um, oh, I'm trying to think. How long ago was this? Were you there for the tsunami? That is the one year that I was back in England. Wow. Over, lucky. Over, yeah. Well, I was lucky, yeah. And, um, yeah, it was very strange because, yes, I had planned to be in some of the areas when the tsunami, you know, hit. But that was the one time I decided I had to go back and see my parents. Um, so I was away over the Christmas period and the whole Christmas New Year. I bet they were, so, they, they were very relieved that you were as well. Well, that's true. Uh, but, yes, yeah, that was absolute devastation. Because uh, there was absolutely no warning, mm -hmm. and a lot of the areas that were hit were yeah, pretty unstable economically and, and politically, to be honest. So, right. yeah, that was a tough thing. So, um, obviously, well, you're not there now. So, mm -hmm. um, what made you leave Thailand? Why did Why did you go? Well, <laughs> there are there are a few things that sort of, if we talk about expat life, mm -hmm. I think they become more important as you get older. Yeah. So I'd looked at going to Japan, I'd been to uh, Cambodia, to Laos, I'd even had job offers. Um, and then in Thailand, I developed some kind of weird illness, mm. which it didn't seem particularly serious at the beginning, but it was some kind of allergy, some kind of skin reaction to something. But it became very clear that I could go to all the different hospitals, and this is all you know, paid at the point of access. Um, and they'd give you a bag of pills, but no real diagnosis. And let's just say my health just went down and down. Uh, at this point, I was married to a time. I, I should add that. Mm -hmm. um, but the healthcare system is very, very strange. Okay. And without wanting to be too nasty, I certainly know quite a few people who had negative experiences. Mm. Yeah. So effectively, I had to go back to England to get, you know, restarted to really get my health sorted out right um, I'm, I'm a curious and i'm also quite a i have quite a dark sense of humor being english yeah. <laughs> i've got to ask do you want to share what this condition was for well yeah this is the whole point is that when i went back to england yeah all of the doctors all of the diagnoses they were doing oh thailand <laughs> and you could see them nodding and winking and just you know they were yeah, but I, I was a married man in Thailand, <laughs> <laughs> working for a university, <laughs> and you know, quite divorced. Old time priest. Or... Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got more like a monk with the habits. <laughs> but yeah, it was very, it was very strange. But they tested everything. Uh, they tested everything. They didn't come up with anything. But if you imagine a kind of psoriasis or eczema but to the nth degree, yeah. Um, that's the closest you can describe it. It's still not really diagnosed. Right. Um, and this condition was so bad that they put me in the medical textbooks. You're, you're famous. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, fortunately, they, they, they sort of cut off about here. You know, so <laughs> the face isn't in there, but the rest of it is pretty shocking, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, no. Anyway, after, well, yeah, after a turnaround, um, I decided to do some more teacher training in England. Okay. Because uh, when you're an expat and you're teaching, it's almost like you get the role that you can talk your way into. Mm, yes. 
and I managed to get myself into quite a senior kind of job. And I thought, really, I should go back and do some more, you know, official training to make sure that I sort of know what I'm talking about. Yeah, have the or at least back it up. Th- that's the idea, or at least I can blag it more convincingly. Yeah. You know. Uh, I did that and I looked around for work in the UK and I, I, I got a couple of offers but honestly after so long of being an expat the expectations of what you're going to earn next to your um, cost of living mm. and lifestyle it, it, it was a clear and unequivocal no <laughs> you know it was very much a right uh, I think a lot of expats can yeah um, Exactly. So, I mean, it was nice to be back in the UK for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be honest, you know, I'd been back in Thailand. I'd met my current wife. Yeah. And we decided, you know, she was researching uh, renewable energy at the time. She was researching what, sorry? Renewable energy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, wind power, solar power. And she was really on the cutting edge of that for a while. But there are certain things you can do and make progress in in some countries mm-hmm. and other areas that are very much closed off. So for both of us, we, we felt that we were going to make no progress. Yeah. Um, the second dark side to being an expat in somewhere like Thailand especially um, is that there's a very, there's kind of insidious Buddhism, which sounds strange. Mm-hmm. But the point was that I was nearly killed in a motorbike accident. Well, the other thing, I managed to save my life effectively. It's a horrible story, mm-hmm. uh, but don't ride motorbikes. Certainly not in countries that people don't know well. Um, the guy nearly killed me, but because he didn't have insurance, my medical bills weren't paid. Wow. But we've all said it's definitely his fault. Yes. Yeah. We've all said it's not my fault. No. Can I claim on my insurance? Well, we'll give you half because we shouldn't really pay out because it's not your fault. So do they pay my hospital bill? No. So how do I do it? So we went through court and basically the judge, man to man, said, do you want him to go to jail? (laughs) Sorry? Well, look, we've got the equivalent of like £300. Towards, mm-hmm. I don't know, about an eight thousand pound hospital bill. Wow, mm-hmm. yeah, very badly broken. Um, and my only sort of <laughs> way of getting any kind of compensation was to send this young kid to the jail. My lord! So yeah, there's no f- financial compensation if you don't have insurance. Moral of that story yeah. is either get comprehensive insurance yourself that covers absolutely ev- everything from mosquito bites forward. <laughs> Or <laughs> don't ride a motorbike in Thailand. Absolutely. The thing is that there is no safety net. Yeah. So we have an assumption of a certain level of uh, rule of law, mm-hmm. effectively. Oh, they've, they've still got a truck. Don't I get that as to pay my medical bills? Not necessarily. Mm. And as I said to a friend of mine, well, actually a student who's a lawyer, I said, um, should I go further in the legal system? And they said, oh, don't do that. It'll cost you more. It, it'll cost you more, and it may backfire on you. So, it may, exactly, because you don't know if they've got influential friends or... This wow. Kind of 
Okay, okay, no problem. So, so, right, so obviously you're, comes, you're not in the UK or South Korea or Thailand now, so tell me about your, your newest adventure, I suppose. Well, well, that was the point, is that when I was in England, Vanessa and I got married, uh, we were thinking, where do we go next? Now, my wife's from Uruguay, and she grew up in Washington, D.C., so American, Uruguay. Yeah. And we looked at what we could do, like a good destination for both of us. So English teaching, I felt Spain. She speaks fluent Spanish, and I'll try. Um, and we actually settled. We got, I got off quite a few jobs straight away. Nice. Um, we actually went to La Rioja. Mm. I don't know if, if you've ever been up there. Yeah, I have, yeah, a couple of times. Don't remember uh, much about it. <laughs> that's about right, yeah. Um, <laughs> And again, it was a lovely little place called Logroño. I, I can't recommend it enough for a short holiday. Nice. Very family friendly. It's all about food and drink and fiestas. And they're quite nice people, really. But their wine, um, oof, their wine festival is a week long. It begins one Friday night and ends the following Sunday night. And everybody is just smashed. So it sounds like a great party. Well, it is, but it's quite a small place. Um, the thing is, we sort of fell in love with Spain very quickly mm-hmm. because the countryside is absolutely spectacular. You've got all these beautiful small medieval cities that are really well preserved. People were pretty friendly. Yeah. And there'd be random high culture that you could see for like five to ten euros mm. in the theatre, which was stunning. You know, it was a, a fantastic thing. But uh, a year, two years we stayed in the end, which was long enough because we'd seen everything and it's a very small city. It's only a few hundred thousand people, 200. And then well, we moved to Barcelona because after visiting it once, we, we fell in love with it. And I think everybody does, really, don't they? Yeah, I definitely did. I yeah. definitely did. So how long have you been in Barcelona now, Paul? So it's now, what, three years now? Which, uh, three years. Yeah, that's it. Um, one of my very good friends described Barcelona very eloquently. He said it's the golden prison. <laughs> once you get here, you can't leave. Everything is yeah. gilded and everything looks amazing and it's so wonderful. And you're kind of stuck here. Um, it, yeah, you know what? You've got a really good point. Um, I kept hold of my stupid old car. I, I bought uh, one of these things, you know, where they say never touch a car if you're buying it in the rain, mm-hmm. if you're buying it from uh, Spanish, a little bit racist, but they said never buy it from the gypsy families, uh-huh. never buy this, that, and the other. And I did. Mm-hmm. And that car cost me nothing, and it kept going for ages. It's been around France and Spain on road trips. Well, it earned its money back. It, without doubt. But one of the things is when you live in Barcelona, you quite often forget that the rest of Catalonia is absolutely stunning. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things you do kind of get stuck in the city because uh, there's so much to do and it is so beautiful um, yeah. that you have to drag yourself out of Barcelona to go and see the rest of Catalonia. I yeah. mean, personally, myself, I love going up the coast towards France and all the little towns, all the tiny little villages, the little alcoves, the beautiful little coastlines, yeah. the food, um, the wine. It's, yeah, it's spectacular. It really is. Yeah, there's so much to explore. I mean, again, the wine is a recurring feature in my story as well. I 
Yeah. I know a few people that work for uh, vineyards up in Penedès. Oh, what um, do you think of the Penedès? Well, it varies so much. <laughs> but one of the things that some of these uh, businesses have been doing uh, in sort of COVID times mm-hmm. is that they've been doing a virtual tasting. Virtual so tasting? happened? Yeah. So order uh, a box of three wines, mm-hmm. which are discounted. Yeah. They send it to you and you get to have a tasting with somebody. And oh. they talk to you. Yeah. It's <laughs> nice. Uh, white wine is okay. The rosé, like a Pinot Noir, nice. Mm. But the Carver was exceptional. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, it was, I'm, not, like- uh, I'm not a white wine fan. I don't mind a glass of Carver now and then, uh, but I'm definitely more into my reds. And Me too. Yeah. I've got to say, I don't mind a Penedès. I think it's, it's a very cheerful wine. Um, yeah. I don't think I'd pay a lot more than, let's say, seven euros for a bottle. That's about right. Yeah. You so, know, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice table wine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Montsant, similar, similar. Um, they've got the French influence, which yeah. means that they're growing different grapes. They blend it differently. They've got a whole different view on it. Uh, if you take the more traditional ones, a bit like traditional Riochas, it's like a, I call them smokers wines. Very heavy. Really heavy, really Very strong sweet. sort of taste and, yeah, you almost know. almost reminded me of a Chianti. A yeah, very, yeah. very heavy body on it. That's right. In fact, in fact, some of them are just too much. Mm. So exploring, getting out of the city, I think is essential because that gilded cage kind of idea. Is, yeah, yeah, it's definitely. A okay, so yeah. let's uh, let's reminisce over the years that you've been travelling <laughs> since you left the UK. Yeah. Where would you say you've had the best food? In all your travels. Right. That is it's such a hard question because I'll answer it. <laughs> As you say, uh, being concise is not really uh, my forte. <laughs> um, the biggest surprise, maybe Ethiopia. I was uh, there previously before I really became an expat. That was surprising. Mm. It doesn't taste like anything else. Uh, and surprisingly good. There's a couple of places in Gracia that uh, are good. Yeah. Uh, if you try it. Um, but it's really strange. So it's real, love it, or hate it. Yeah, um, I don't think I've ever tried Ethiopian food. What kind of, what kind of food would it be? Well, okay, so it's, um, it's quite trendy in the States now. Yeah. They have quite an influx in the 90s. They have uh, what's uh, nice, it's Sierra, which is basically a. Um, it's like a flatbread, mm-hmm. slightly fermented. So it's got like, if you imagine sourdough, but sour. Right, okay. And this is presented like table size with different patches. Of, it looks like curry. Okay, okay. So, yeah. It might be fish, vegetables, meat, and quite heavy on the spice, not particularly uh, hot and spicy, more, you know, Hmm. You get a bit of the bread, you get a bit of that. It's lovely. Um, okay, so that's Ethiopia for good food. Okay, so we've been talking about wine a lot, uh, and yeah. we also do, which isn't a bad conversation. So, <laughs> where was your favourite wine from? What's your, what's, what country had your had the best wine for you? There's only one answer: France. 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 Yeah. So my parents lived in Beaujolais, mm-hmm. which is 
and a famous wine, and it's not really my favourite, but if that was your standard, standard table wine, that's yeah, pretty good. Yeah, that's a high standard for a for a table a table wine. It sort of sets your uh, emissions. Exactly, and then from there, you know, just north is Burgundy, and then over there. So, uh, yes, French wine was always the thing for me. Uh, I always like it when you can find something that's small and distinctive. Oh, I'm I'm losing you there, Paul. Oh, sorry, is that a bit louder? That's better. Yeah. Okay, I've got one into the pale wine. Just trying to move away. Um. If you find something small and distinctive, it could be in Mariotta, it could be in Catalonia, mm-hmm. and you find something you really like, then that's all it counts, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, you've got to try, with wines, I think you've got to try a, a varied supply, all different ones, before you find mm-hmm. something you actually like. Uh, yeah. A lot of people judge quality of wine by price, and it's a little bit uh, pico, as they say, a, bit, yeah. a little bit snobby. Uh, to do that I think if, as long as you're happy with the wine that you're drinking and you like it then you know I don't think there is a right or a wrong to it uh, I mean, I've, I've personally fallen in love with a with a wine called Matsui at the moment and it is phenomenal um, I've, I've, I've I mean I went out and bought three bottles of it after trying it and went yeah this is something I could definitely I could definitely have a have a good session on uh, and also <laughs> Enjoy with a wine, with a, with a lovely meal as well, shall we say? Right. So, yeah. so we've got France for wine. We've got Ethiopia, which was a bit of a surprise for food. How yeah. about architecture? What's where 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 have you been in the world where you go? Wow, that is amazing. Okay, um, amazing. I would say South Korea is losing just marginally on two here mm-hmm. because the food in South Korea was an absolute revelation. Right. Because it does the meat and the barbecue stuff, which I love, and the real carnival. It also does the kind of sashimi style, like you might expect in Japan. Yeah. And then it's got all the other things. The architecture, some of it in Korea was just staggering. Um, sometimes in a good way, but often in a. Losing you again. I mean, often in a really bad way. Mm-hmm. So there were a couple of places that I lived, and uh, one of them was on the 33rd floor. And each pot was identical. Wow. So you could drive for a couple of miles, kilometers, and all of the blocks were identical. Mm-hmm. They built in the same team. And the only way that you could tell the difference was on the top of the sort of elevator shaft, which up on the top, with a different color, and they wrote a big a number on the block. So it was very common to lose yourself and have to go. Am I going? Oh, I'm going to do number 30. <laughs> and it's got a blue thing. Um, Easily done. Thailand? Get me not. Not Thailand. Mm. Um, I remember doing a nine hour road trip to go and see uh, a particularly beautiful temple that all the time people raved about. Built at the same time as Angkor Wat. And it's built on the edge of um, a cliff. That looks into Cambodia. Okay. And I drove up there, and it's nine hours, the most boring countryside you've ever seen. Uh, rice paddy, rice paddy tree, rice paddy, rice paddy buffalo, wow. rice paddy, rice paddy. Repeat for nine hours. Mm-hmm. And then when, you, when we got there, there's some beautiful views, but the thing is that all the temples of that era 
were built identically. Yeah. So when you so said, if you, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me like a nine-hour drive to get there and realise, yeah, I, I've seen this. I've seen this. Uh, I've seen this temple before. <laughs> yeah, but it's, exactly. but it's a nice mountain. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so okay. yeah. Right. Friendliest people. Ooh. So far, my experience with Spanish people has been exceptional. Um, there's um, in Japan, for example, when I first went there, there were so few foreigners mm-hmm. that quite often they would just avoid you. Yeah. And I remember having to take um, the metro, the underground, mm-hmm. and I couldn't work out how much to pay from the chart because it was only written in uh, okay. Japanese. Right. And I could see that there was a guy in the information booth. But as soon as I walked towards the information booth, he ducked. <laughs> to avoid you. Literally hid under the counter. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> once you, your friend in Japanese, you completely effort, but yep. initially. Fear of foreign. Um, yes. Oh, my God, I might have to speak English and I'm terrible at it. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely uh, understand that. Oh, on the on that topic, then, um, how many? How, you've lived in all these places. How many languages do you speak? Yeah, this is a good question because uh, if you know the fine art of blagging, mm. um, which is basically to make out, you know, a little bit more than you do. Yeah, I've made my way around the world doing this. I'd say. Um, so I learned a bit of Swahili when I was in Africa in Tanzania. Yeah, a little bit of Amharic in. Ethiopia, but then they didn't expect you to speak any of their language. So if you just said a few polite phrases, everybody thought you were fantastic. Yeah. Same applies in Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, that really went down very well. I honestly think the same applies in Spain to a certain degree. First <laughs> arrive here, if you can say a few phrases in Spanish, people are like, "Oh my God, it's an Englishman who speaks a bit of Spanish." That is incredible. You know, that's quite, it's quite true because some of my favourite bars in Logroño, mm-hmm. um, most of them didn't speak English at all. Yeah. Uh, it was a bit shocking in a way because it's quite a tourist hotspot because it's the Camino de Santiago yeah. that goes through it. Um, so quite often there would be somebody standing there speaking loudly in English, <laughs> either British or American, to the bar staff and the bar staff would just go and look at me. <laughs> yeah. And because... This was exactly, yes, that's right, because this was exactly the, the language that I knew, mm-hmm. you know, why or beer and how much. Yeah. <laughs> I was able to help, and they all thought my, my Spanish was great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thai was the hardest language to learn, without a doubt. And, you know, we talked about embarrassing things, and yeah. this is the place for me to do it, really. Oh, go um, on. Let's hear your embarrassing story, Paul. Uh, well, I, I've got a few. Embarrassing, that's the first mistake I made in Spain, was we sat around having a beautiful dinner, and my wife, of course, is happy as Larry speaking Spanish. She's expressing this beautiful conversation going on. I can tell everybody's educated, and I just can't really join in. I can understand a lot of that, you know. And then at one point, somebody asked me a question, and I wanted to just say that I was embarrassed. So, of course, oh, I translated that. Yes, I did. <laughs> and I said, estoy embarazado. You're and, of pregnant. course, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now I'm pregnant. And everybody's looking at me like, 
Well, he looks a bit tubby, but come on. <laughs> oh, that's so, We've done this. I mean, yeah. Thailand, um, the, the order of the words and the tone of the words mm. changes everything. Okay. Which is why if you're a little bit shy, you can't speak Thai. Because you have to mimic the sound completely. Otherwise, you've just said a completely different word. Okay, so you could be saying the words happy, but if the tone reflects that you're sad, it changes the construction of what the meaning is. You know what? I wish it was that simple. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tonal language, so there's five tones. Right. right? There's a a flat, there's a high, there's a low, there's a high and up, there's a low and down. Right. It's nuts. But I'll give you a quick example. I was picked up from the top university which is like the Royal University, Chulalongkorn, uh, in Bangkok. And I was to be taken pretty much as a VIP to a government department. Mm-hmm. And it was the Department of Land Management. I was doing a specialised course for them in uh, business communications. And the, the guy picked me up and we were driving along and he asked me a few questions. He established I spoke pretty good time. And then he said, oh, no, if we're going there, there'll be a traffic jam. And I said, maybe later, pangdern by pangdern, which means roughly, don't worry, you can take, just drive on the pavement. <laughs> because pangdern is the motorway, pangdern is the walkway, the sidewalk, the pavement. So you and, told him to drive on the sideway. On yeah, the side absolutely. Way. Like the VIP in the back says, oh, traffic jam, don't worry, just knock down the pedestrian, <laughs> drive on the pavement, good man. <laughs> I'm important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's quite a few of those, to be honest. You know, um, what was the other one? Was um, uh, Basically, I've got the word order mixed up, and instead of asking for, like, a handyman mm-hmm. you know, to come and fix things, I asked for an orange elephant. Oh, yeah, similar. And did you get one? <laughs> uh, no, I've got some very strange looks. <laughs> no, right. they, they were all sold out of orange elephants. Apparently so, yeah. Can you believe it? Oh, God. Last time you go to that place. So exactly. coming back to what's happening right now, obviously yeah. we're going through the COVID quarantine. Um, mm-hmm. Happier occasions, obviously, looks like a lot of the countries in centralised Europe are now poking their head out of quarantine, at least going into the, into the section one or the first phase. Um, let's go back to the start of quarantine. How did that really affect your life? Um, how did it change what you do on a day-to-day basis? Uh, great question. I mean, the thing is that for me, I was always going to different places. Yeah. And one of the joys of Barcelona is, is walking around. Mm. The fact that once you get to know your way around, walking is, is quite efficient. So going to one office, teaching one group of students, going on, having a coffee, thinking about what I'm going to do in the next set of classes, and writing up some notes. and it, it was really quite a civilised lifestyle, isn't it? Yeah. And then suddenly, none of that. And I've done some online teaching and some online editing work previously, but suddenly that was everything. Mm. And you suddenly realise that maybe this is the direction a lot of teaching is going to go. But I think it's quite difficult to demarcate your life. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, first thing is we're constantly online all the time, aren't we? Oh, permanently plug- plugged in, completely. 
Uh, and there's a kind of anxiety and stress that comes with that. Yeah. Because I might get emails. I actually just had a, <laughs> an email while we're talking yeah. asking for like an instant response. And there's part of your part of your psyche going, I must check that. Something's just beeped. I've got to look at it. You're yeah. a slave to your phone, the next beep, the next ring, the next vibration. And it could be nothing. Or you know when you're kind of <laughs> it could be something very important. You just have no idea. So yeah. this hyperconnectivity, this sort of uh, techno stress, some people call it, I think. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it was only Let's say it was only 40 years ago when the woman or the man of the house would go out to work and they wouldn't speak to or hear from their partner, their husband, their wife for seven hours, eight hours till the evening because they didn't have phones, you know, and if your partner did call home because something was wrong, it was something was wrong and it definitely was an emergency. Um, and obviously that, that put a lot of trust in the relationship to a certain degree. Um, now I know that if my wife just wants to say hi, she's going to give me a call and we are in permanent contact 24 hours a day, you know? That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, there's... She's put a chip in me anyway, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, might as well. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, this is one of the things, you know, um, the thing is that, you know, demarcating your life, so when is work time, when is family time, when is hobbies or leisure time. Yeah. All these things are you know, kind of blurred lines. Um, and I think that doesn't help us easily. Um, then when you see a lot of people, I have to say, uh, in kind of time of lockdown, uh, it's like the tinfoil hat that they come out in force. Mm. Suddenly there's a lot of sort of unhelpful, stressful kind of rumors going around. Yeah. Um, I, I found that also to be sort of Grab your microphone up a little bit. Oh. There you go. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, I should stop gesticulating. Um, I'm learning Spanish. Ah, right. So, obviously, you've been locked up pretty much the same as me now, what, uh, two and a half months, more or less? That's it, yeah. Um, how's, how's that affected your mental state? Um, obviously, there's you, your wife, and a cat. Um, so, you know, how, how have you found that getting on, isolated to the same people, same things, same four walls every day? I think the cat's done quite a good job. And, uh, at this point, it was just the two of us because we're both working from home. Mm. So it means that we have to try and sort of separate. Um, mentally, yeah, it's like. It's difficult. Now I'm supposed to go and meet some friends. And part of me still can't believe that I can go and do that. Yeah. Uh, I take my alcohol spray, or I spray my glass. We've got to take a little bit of getting used to because we've got this kind of siege mentality, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, it's one of the things I've missed personally is that Barcelona is such a, a coffee shop culture that, mm-hmm. like you said earlier, I finish a meeting... I have a, a quick little coffee, wait for my next meeting, think about what I'm going to do, you know, or let's say we're going to the shops and uh, my wife wants to have a look in one particular shop. I'll be like, oh, I'm just going to go and have a coffee and I'll wait for you over there, you know, or watch the world go by. And that's one of the things I've really missed with, with being in the quarantine that I haven't got those five, ten minutes of sitting down, having a coffee and thinking because my five, ten minutes having a coffee is now on the sofa with three kids asking me questions. 
There you go. That's something I noticed when I got to fame very quickly, incidentally, is that there are a lot of places where you have like a square, mm -hmm. a children's playground, and a couple of cafes. Yeah. So the parents could sit down, have a coffee, watch the kids while they go and play, and they, you know. <laughs> it's ideal. And obviously, we've got the weather for it. Yes. I mean, even in the winter time, it's, you know, it's still. Well, for an Englishman like me, it's still warm, <laughs> you know. So, so yeah, it, it is ideal. So we're now poking our head out uh, of the quarantine, a little bit like, a, I don't know, a bear coming out of its hibernation, that kind of thing I like to think of, or maybe a turtle poking its head in the head out of its shell, I'm not sure. Um, so we're getting to a point now where the coffee shops, uh, the bars – uh, are allowed to put a certain amount of tables out there as long as people are separated and that the camareros, the waiters, have face masks and gloves and so on. Um, we're going to be going through that phase, I think, for probably a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. I mean, when do you foresee, the, well, what do you foresee in the future? When do you see Barcelona, Spain getting back to what we perceived as normal before? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And the answer is that, you know, the is still out. I mean, my father's a scientist, so every now and again, if I need to talk something through, I just call him up and say, does this sound right? And, you know, because none of it's for certain. But we do also have to watch the sink mentality. Yeah. And for a lot of people, maybe they're isolated on their own. Mm -hmm. In terms of mental health, it's something we've got to think about. And, you know, I certainly, when I got back to working at the Anthropoly, there was an adjustment period there where I suddenly realised that I have to know what day it is and what time it is and what I'm doing next. And wear pants. So, that's it, yeah. That was the other thing, exactly. Very careful of where your camera is pointing. Um, I did that to my wife's meeting anyway. <laughs> I walked past to get a beer from the fridge in boxer shorts, completely oblivious to the fact that she had a camera on. Uh, yeah, it's got a couple of comments for that. Um, so we've got to be careful and, and balance things and go steadily. But I don't think we need to be fear-mongering, but I don't think we need to go, you know, completely crazy as soon as the doors are open. But I, I think people are being generally fairly fairly smart about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, from what I've seen in the streets, the people are observing their distances. You know, the the bar last night, I was sat on the terrace and everybody was separate. I did feel, like I was saying earlier, I felt like a little bit guilty uh, <laughs> sitting there. Yeah. I had my face mask in one hand and my beer in the other. <laughs> you know, and I was taking, taking a beer, putting the mask back on. <laughs> as long as you weren't that guy that cut a hole in the mask so we could drink. Right? Yeah, that's a good well, I have thought about it. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I came to the conclusion that just an intravenous drip will suffice. Um, yeah. But yeah, a lot easier. But no, it, it, I left the bar last night. I only mm. had two beers. Uh, mm. and I left there and I felt, I felt happier. Yeah, I yeah. felt like wow. You know, I I won't say it brought a tear to my uh, to my eye because that sounds a little bit dependent, uh, but it did definitely <laughs> make me feel good that things were almost well getting getting yeah. on the road back to normal. Should we say that's right? And that, you know, that's the thing. These little milestones, like going out for a walk in the evening, and yes, meeting up with a few people as I'm going to do later, and have a beer. I saw a great meme today uh, in Spanish, which basically said, uh, we can only have so many people on the terrace. So if you're coming here, please be aware that you have to drink for three. 
<laughs> and if not, please leave it to the professionals. Yeah, exactly. Well, they've got to earn their money somehow. Exactly. A very, very good friend of mine um, who owns a restaurant in the centre of Barcelona. Mm-hmm. The restaurant itself has been in his family for about 50, 60 years. Yeah. He worked in the restaurant as a, as a young child himself all the way through. He <laughs> run the restaurant, owned it. For the first time in 40 years, in January, they refurbed the whole restaurant for the first time in 40 years. He'd been oh. saving up for years to refurbish the place. Oh. And then the virus hit. And I was speaking to him oh, not two days ago, and he was almost in tears. He was yeah. like, if he doesn't open in the next week and a half to two weeks, then, you know, after 60 years of being in business, his restaurant's going to go to the wall. And yeah. Yeah. that's really the price of this of this virus in Barcelona, I think, you know, all these small yeah. businesses, family businesses. Yeah. Um, I think we have a, a, a responsibility to go out and, and support them. You know. you know what? I think that's the positive that we should take away from this. Is that mm. We've tried to support the local businesses here. My, my local wine shop has been doing delivery. <laughs> um, Supporting the local wine shop. Well, they've been supporting uh, us, so yeah. yeah. yeah no. Well, that's right. <laughs> uh, support was needed after the wine as well. <laughs> local curry house, local yeah. place. You know, we try and, and I think the idea that we can go out and help Indeed, indeed. So, Paul, obviously we're live on air now. We are going to be repeating the show a little bit later as well at six o'clock. Um, for the six o'clock show, I'm going to ask you: Is there a favourite song you would like to put on, and I'll play it after your interview? Um, Harley and the Cockney Rebels. Oh, you're breaking up a minute. Come. Uh, it's called Steve Harley and the Cockney Rebels. Come up and see me, make me smile. You know that one? I don't know that one. I, I will. Bet you will hear it. I do not. I will when I hear it. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I will dig that out for you, and we will play it after your interview when it airs this evening. Um, okay. Paul, is there any hellos or any, anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> well, at the moment, not so much. Um, you know, I'm very into seeing this gallery of ideas take off. I, I really wish you well with all of this. Thank and you. We're talking to some very interesting people. Must be uh, scraping the barrel to get this far down. Boy, <laughs> well, you were you were the top of my list, my friend. You were the top. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Andy. I, I suppose we should be wrapping up. Indeed, indeed, Paul. Thank you very much for your time. I do appreciate it, and no doubt we'll see you on the well. We'll hear you on the air again very soon. <laughs> see so you on the terraces. All the best. Great pleasure. Bye. Bye. Done it all. You broke every code. You the rebel to the floor. You spoke the game, no matter what you say. But only metal, what a Nothing left, all gone and run away.